If you have your Bibles, Romans 15 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to pick it up, probably verse 5. Say probably, it is going to be verse 5. And go, I think, probably to 22. We're going to see about that, but I think we're probably going to make it all the way to 22 here today. Um, We are wrapping it all up. If you're newer here, we've been in this series, I think, 30-some weeks by now. We started it back in the fall, knowing that we were in very unstable, shaky times as a culture, and we wanted to be a church that's deeply rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans is that book. It is a book that is all about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its implications for you and for me today. Um, I've titled this one, The Purpose Driven Life, right? There's a guy named Rick Warren who stole that title from me a long time ago, wrote a book, sold millions of copies. Uh, He's a total thief and, you know, uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, uh, this is the direction that Paul's leading us in. Uh, Rick kind of nailed the purpose a long time ago, so we're just going to kind of tongue-in-cheek reuse that one a little bit right there. But this is where Paul's going to be going. We're going to see a little bit of how Paul thinks about his own specific purpose and how the gospel speaks into that purpose in which he does life. A little while ago, I was reading an article that was about a number of different uh, pastors, Christian leaders in the country today, and how they all go back about 20 years to a sermon John Piper did at a passion conference 20 years ago, back in 2000, that God really used to help shape their vision for ministry and their love for really the world and what God was doing all throughout the world. But I don't know if you guys remember this. Anybody ever been a part of a uh, the Passion Conferences, meaning the Louis Giglio ones back in the day, college students, young adults, anybody hear these things? They're right. Okay, there's a few. This was a big thing. It's still going on today, but um, there's this one that took place about 2000. Um, the speaker that day was John Piper. They were holding a one a one day conference out in Shelby Farms. I think it was Tennessee. And uh, Kat was actually there. We were talking about that one earlier. But um, this is a sermon that this is a pa- this is a passage and a. Um, kind of a moment in, in time that really God used to shape a lot of people's purpose in life. Uh, like I said, Piper was the, was the preacher that day. This is kind of the beginning of his, of his days of writing and not kind of, I guess, rising to prominence, I think, in the preaching circles, I think. But um, there was 40,000 college students that was out there at Shelby Farms this day. And it was an outdoor conference. And um, it was one of these days that it was, it was raining all over the place, terrible weather, Right, and uh, it was kind of cold and really, really windy. Absolutely terrible situation for doing outdoor preaching or anything like that. And so everybody's out there; they're huddled, kind of around their. They got their blankets over their heads. They're shielding themselves from the rain. Piper gets up to the stage and he begins to preach. And a big, giant gust of wind comes, knocks over like all of his notes. Uh, like it's all spread out all over the place. So I, like guys, I have nightmares about that actually taking place. I, like that's like a, a preacher's worst nightmare, right? He just kind of comes and blows over the whole thing. And Piper gets up there this day, everybody's outside, and he begins to kind of recompose and re-pray and reorient himself, and he gets into this story, and he starts telling the story about a couple of missionaries that are there from his church, one named Ruby Eliasson, the other from, named Laura Edwards, and he says, three weeks ago, our church got word that Ruby and Laura had both been killed in Cameroon. And he continues, and he says, Ruby was over 80 years old at the time, single all of her life. She poured it all out. For one great thing, to make Jesus' name great among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed one day, the car went over a cliff, and both of them were killed instantly. And so I asked my people, he says, were their lives wasted? Is their story nothing but a sad tragedy of two older ladies who wasted their lives in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. 
And he says, the crowd seemed hesitant when I asked that question, almost a little confused, but slowly but surely, one by one, different people started shouting out of the crowd, no, not wasted, not at all. So Piper echoed back, he goes, no, their lives weren't wasted. It's not a tragedy, but I'll tell you what's a tragedy. And then he pulls out a page from a travel magazine, and he read it out loud for the crowd, and he said, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and they collect seashells. And he continues and he says, the American dream, coming to the end of your life, your one and only life, coming before your great creator to give an account for the things that you've done and saying, God, look at all of my seashells. Look at all the things that I've collected. Look at all the comforts in which I've lived. Look at all the things that I've acquired for myself. He goes, that's the great tragedy in life. People today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace this tragic dream. And today I'm here to plead with you, don't buy it. Please, whatever you do, don't buy it and don't waste your life. A little later on, that sermon would go on to launch a book called Don't Waste Your Life that many of you guys have read, many of you guys have studied, and God has used tremendously to change the course and the direction of your life. But that day, nearly 40,000 students are sitting there at Shelby Farms, and they start thinking about the greater purpose of their life. And over the years, as I read that book, it wouldn't just be students, it'd be people of all stages of life, young, middle-aged, old that are all sitting there going asking this question and saying, okay, Father, like, what is it that you want to do in me? God, what is the thing that you put me here to do at this particular stage in life, at this particular setting, around these particular people, with these particular resources? Father, what is the thing that you've called me specifically to do? There's got to be more to my life than just money, than just comfort, than just luxuries, than success, than, than freedom and being able to do whatever it is that I want to do. Katy Perry posted on her Instagram account not long ago, 100 million digital singles and still insecure, testifying to the fact that these things that we long for in life, they don't satisfy in the ways that we think that they're going to satisfy. Jim Carrey wrote a very similar thing. He said, I think that everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they've ever dreamed of doing so that they can understand that it's not the answer. Hashtag beyond dumb and dumber, he says. Church, if money's not the answer, if success isn't the answer, if freedom is not the answer, if independence is not the answer, how in the world are you and I supposed to think about the purposes in which we live in today? I think this is what Paul is going to help us with in our passage today. So again, Romans chapter 15, verse 5 is where we're going to be. If you are newer to the conversation, this is Paul wrapping up his letter to the church here in Rome. Um, it's very simple in, in structure in some ways. It's 11 chapters of gospel theology. This is what he's doing. He's talking to this church, this very diverse church of believers, Jews and Gentile believers, all about the good news of Jesus Christ, what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how he's gifted us with his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, how he's brought together a diverse community of people, Jews and Gentiles, um, every socioeconomic background you could possibly imagine, every corner of the earth. He's made us into 
one brand new family. So with 11 chapters of incredible gospel theology, and the last few chapters from 12 on are essentially the implications of that gospel theology. Last week we were talking about um, having harmony in a diverse fellowship, right? And, and how uh, our harmony is greater than our harmony. But from here on out at this point in the text, um, Paul is going to start repeating a phrase that I want to show you. I think it's the thing that's going to shape the way that he thinks about his vision. And so he starts off in verse 5, and this is where we wrapped up last week, but he says this. It's a blessing as he wraps up this, this message on harmony. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's not talking about harmony for the sake of harmony. He's not just talking about harmony so that you're going to have a better life right now because peace is really, really nice. It's better for you and it's, it does better things for our anxiety or anything like that. He's saying, no, no, no. Like, it's harmony that together with one voice as a diverse community of believers around here that we would better glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He continues repeating the same thing in verse 7. He says this, he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God, he says. Again, in other words, don't just welcome them again with a plastic smile on your face or simply because you think it's what you are supposed to do on a Sunday morning. Don't just welcome people for the sake of welcoming them or anything like that. He says, welcome them in such a way that's going to result in the praise and glory of his name. Do it in such a way that you're reminded of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, who when you were hostile, engaged in evil deeds, different from him, God welcomed you, brought you into his family through extending an offer of grace and fellowship to you. In that mindset, glorify God in the way that you welcome him. He continues in verse 8, very, very similar things. I tell you, he says, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness by confirming the promises given to the patriarchs. In other words, what he's saying right here is one of the reasons that Jesus came, he's just acknowledging the simple fact that one of the reasons he came was to show he's a faithful God. He's a promise-keeping God. All of the promises that he made to the Old Testament patriarchs, they are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Like, this is what he's saying. Jesus is the yes and amen to all the different promises that God made in the Old Testament. All the different feasts, all the different festivals, all the different promises, all the different prophecies, all of them are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so this is one of the reasons he's saying that Jesus came and took on flesh nearly 2,000 years ago to prove he is a faithful, promise-keeping God. All the promises he made to the patriarchs are are, are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons that he came. He continues and he says this, the other reason that he came is that the Gentiles, meaning the nations, everyone who is not Jewish here, the nations, also might, what? Give glory to God for his mercy. Three times he's repeating the exact same thing as he launches into this conclusion of his book. Three different times he's saying, no, no, no. You welcome one another, not just for the sake of being welcoming, but for the praise and for the glory of God's name. You don't just choose harmony over homogeny for the sake of your peace and and lessening your anxiety. No, no, no. You choose that for the sake of his praise and for his glory. And now Jesus, he says in verse 9, he says, the reason Jesus came is that the nations may live for the praise and for the glory of his name. And it doesn't stop right there. The next four verses are obscure. They sound sort of obscure. Four different references to Old, different, Old Testament different passages, all saying the same thing, that this is God's plan from the very beginning, to include the Gentiles, that they also 
may glorify him. Verse 9, it's a quote from 2 Samuel 22, where David's singing a song of deliverance, and he says, therefore, I'm going to praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10 is Deuteronomy 32, where he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. Verse 11 is Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples, all the nations extol his name. Verse 12 is a reference to Isaiah. The root of Jesse will come, meaning Jesus, he's speaking, Jesus is a fulfillment of these promises. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will all the Gentiles rule. Or in, all, in, in him all the Gentiles will hope. Point of the matter being, all people glorifying him always has always been his design. And so I want to bring us back to some very simple, very basic things that we've talked about and we've referenced a lot about here. But like this is a purpose that he has branded in our DNA. We read about it in the very beginning, the opening chapters of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, sixth day of creation. God says this. He says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, over all creeping things that creep on the earth. And so this is what God did. Verse 27, he says, he created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. This is what theologians refer to as the imago Dei. It's Latin, which simply means the image of God, that you and I were actually made in the image of God, meaning that you and I are really, really different from the rest of the animals. We're not just better, more evolved versions of monkeys or anything like that, that when God looked at you, he actually created you in the image of God of God to bear his likeness, which is different than sameness. We're not talking about that you're the same as God, that you carry all the exact qualities of God to the same degree or anything like that. We're simply saying that, that when God created you and me, he made you with purpose because he made you in the image of God, which is highly debated about the full extent of what that actually means. But at the very least of things, what he's saying here is that you and I are creative beings because God, we see at the very beginning, is a creative God. And we bear that God's image. It's one of the reasons we want to do Create Week around here in the summertime for our children's ministries, that they would all understand, hey, you've been created in the image of a creative God. And the unique ways that that plays out in your life and the different ways that you are creative, that reflects a very creative God. It's the same, like we are spiritual beings because God is also, God is spirit, right? We are spiritual beings because God is spirit and we were made in the image of a spiritual God. We're intelligent because God is intelligent. We are moral because God is not only uh, moral, but he is holy and he is just and he is loving and good. We're relational beings, right? Because God is triune. God is triune, meaning from the beginning, like he's ne there's never been a time when he's not existed in the context of community with himself, right? One essence, three distinct persons from the very beginning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's never known loneliness because he's always existed in the context of community. You and I are also relational beings because we are created in the image of that relational, communal, triune God over here. But back to the point of the text right here is that you and I are wired to glorify God. Because we bear the image of a God who is also doing the exact same thing. We bear the image of a self-glorifying God. And so I think this is absolutely fascinating. One of the things that we see all throughout Scripture is that each member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is each eternally selfless. And we read these things about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're eternally selfless in the way that they interact not only with humanity toward us and the giving of themselves for our good, but also in the interaction with each distinct member of the Holy Trinity, right? And we read things like the Father glorifies the Son. This is who he is. He is self-glorifying in the sense that the Father glorifies the Son. 
The Son glorifies the Father. We read these things. The Spirit glorifies the Son, who then goes about and glorifies the Father. It's a self-glorifying triune God. John 17, Jesus prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The word that he uses there is to magnify. It's to lift up. It's to elevate. Not that, that you're adding anything to God. It's just that you're recognizing it in a greater way than you previously were. That's what it means to glorify, to lift up, to praise, to magnify John 16, 14, Jesus is going to say that he, meaning the Holy Spirit, will glorify me by taking from what is mine and then disclosing it to you. Point of the matter, church, is like, this is the God whose image that we bear. And so this shapes our purpose in at least two very distinct and very real ways, vertically and horizontally, how we think about our purposes today. Vertically, this is going to remind us that as image bearers of a self-glorifying God, who is also all-loving, also all-holy, and all the different qualities that we also always talk about over here. Like, but as image bearers of a self-glorifying God, you and I were created to glorify Him. It's why He repeats it over and over and over again all throughout this section. Uh, he, he says that you, you, you welcome one another, again, for the glory of His name. We live in harmony with one another for the glory of His name. Jesus came for the glory of His name among all the Gentiles and among all the different nations. And it's not just here in this text. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's going to repeat it over and over again. He's going to say in verse 6, he predestined us to adoption to the praise and the glory of his name. Verse 12, he, we've been claimed as God's own possession for the praise and for the glory of his name. Verse 14, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit for the praise and for the glory of his name. In other words, as we look at God and his movements throughout scripture, we are seeing over and over again that he is always working for the praise of his glory. And at first glance, like, that may make us a little queasy and kind of say, okay, that sounds narcissistic, right? Like, why is God able to do that when you and I are not able to pursue our own glory? That would be narcissistic, it would be prideful, it would be egotistical, and all these different things. It's what Jonathan Edwards describes, and he, says, he puts it like this. He says, the pursuit of one's own glory is only a problem if the person doing it isn't absolutely worthy of that glory. In other words, like, God can pursue his own glory because, like, he's actually worthy of receiving that glory, and when he is rightly standing at the center of it all, then his glory actually corresponds with our good. Edwards goes on and describes it. He says it's kind of like the sun, who's the, who's the only thing worthy of holding center court at the center of the universe. It would be nonsense for me or for the earth or for any other planet to try to push the sun out of the way and glorify itself because only the sun has that kind of power, light, and warmth to bring life to the universe and hold all things together. And so he says, so it is with God. He's not only worthy of our glory, but his glory corresponds with our good. And I think we see this play out all over the place, do we not? I mean, I'll never forget one of my, uh, one of my favorite worship experiences, worship gathering experiences was 2005, traveling out to Rwanda and Africa. It was nearly 11 years after the genocide took place. One million people killed over a hundred days span. And the country was still in repair. We were out there visiting with a ministry called Alarm, African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. A guy named Celeste Sakura is a good friend, and he started this ministry. He was a Rwandan pastor, and he went out there. And in the time after the genocide, he was out there working with government officials and planting churches and establishing reconciliation ministries through the gospel of Jesus Christ and allowing the grace of God to come and bring healing to a very war-torn nation. 11 years later, we were visiting with his ministry, and we were seeing all the fruits of what was taking place, and we were going and continuing to preach and continue to bring it out there. We were visiting a number of different churches 
out in the community. And there's this one particular church I'll never forget going out there. It's probably just one of the most unbelievable, just high-energy, exuberant worship experiences I've ever been a part of. And I'll just tell you, it's one of these experiences. You, you go out there, and as a young preacher, I'm sitting there going, okay, I've, I don't know why I'm the one preaching here because this is one of these experiences where I need to be sitting and just soaking in and taking from you. I don't know if you've been in that situation. You're like, I don't know what I'm bringing to the table here. But I got done preaching, and and then the other minister, the Rwandan minister, gets up there, and that joker just starts preaching. And he begins telling the testimonies of how God's grace brought healing to a cold and hardened and hateful heart of his that was still remembering the violence done against his family by neighbors that he still lives around today. And he was giving testimony to the grace and to the softening elements of what God has done in his own heart and how that's come and made a new man out of him. And he's just giving testimony to the goodness and to the faithfulness of God. And as he does that, he begins singing and he begins dancing. I don't know if you've ever been like, you've been around an environment like just unbelievable dancing. Drew joked about running laps around here. Like that's normative in a lot of other places. Like these jokers are just running and doing laps all over the place, bouncing up and down, giving testimony to the faithfulness of God. He passes on the microphone to somebody else. They come and give testimony to the exact same thing. They pass it on. Then they do an altar call. People are coming to the front from the community. They're hearing about the gospel for the very first time. And they're just bouncing up and down, singing praises to our God. Church, is this not what God does? Like church, we tend to glorify that which brings us joy. This is what he does, right? This is what we do. We, we glorify by nature. He's wired this in our DNA to the point where we naturally want to glorify the things that bring us joy. Right? I remember a little while ago, I was at a football game. I was seeing the Florida Gators play Georgia. I'm a huge Gator fan. Went out to Jacksonville, checked it out. The Gators were dominating Georgia that day. So I was like cheering and celebrating a lot. And like every time there's a touch and I'm sitting up there and I'm jumping up and down, like high-fiving everybody, giving hugs to strangers over there. Church, we're hardwired to praise and to glorify that which brings us joy. I've told you guys the funny story, like Caleb was three years old. We moved over to the area. And one of the things we started to do when he was really, really little is I started to take him to Bahama Bucks. Remember that? Like, like snow cones are the greatest thing in the world. And this is the thing that we would do. We'd go get a snow cone and then we'd go walk the aisles at Home Depot because that's just what I like to do sometimes. I like to you know, look at all the things that I have no idea how to operate. Um, but I would go, we got in the snow cone and we start walking the aisles of Home Depot. And I'll never forget, like we're walking the aisles and my kid is over there like munching on this, on this snow cone. He's got like a blue face and he's singing at the top of his lungs going, my daddy is the greatest daddy in the world because he gets me snow cones. And it's unbelievable joy. And he's just singing and he's just like, people are snickering and laughing as they're just watching it like blue face singing at the top of his lung. But like, this is what we do. We are hardwired to glorify that which brings us joy. That's why the Westminster Catechism, one of the greatest statements of the faith that the church has says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is, it. this is what our purpose is all about. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, they're looking at the entirety of Scripture going, like, this is what he's called us to do, to enter into relationship with him as he has moved toward us, to come into relationship with him, to experience his grace, to understand his love, to be in right relationship with him, and from the overflow of that place of joy that we would go and we would give him praise and we would give him all the glory that he alone is due. Church, this is what he's talking about right here. Vertically, as we are made in the image of God, he is a self-glorifying God who is all holy, all loving. We're just reminded that our, our purpose is to glorify him and to give it back to him. And so we see this, and horizontally it continues on, and it reminds us that 
all of humanity also has been given inherent dignity, value, and honor as such image bearers of God. And so vertically it reminds us, hey, as image bearers of that God, we give him glory. But also as image bearers of God, as we look around and we say, hey, every single man, woman, and child on this planet are also image bearers of God. It reminds us of the dignity and the value, the honor that every other individual image bearer of God also has. And it reminds us that all of humanity is in the scope of God's purpose. Church, it's the value of all that we see repeated throughout this entire thing. Verse 8 and 9, Jesus came not only for the Jews, but for all the nations, all of humanity, that they too may glorify God for his mercy. In other words, it's not just about you, my Jewish people, he's saying. This is that the nations are going to understand me, that they're going to taste of my mercy, that they're going to understand my grace. They're going to know the goodness of God, that they too are going to sing praises unto my name as well. Verse 11, praise the Lord. He says, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. You know what's fascinating about this word, all? Like it actually means all. This is what he's talking about right here. Everyone, from the tiny human in the womb to the disabled who's living in a wheelchair or in hospice care for the rest of their lives. All is what he's talking about right here. To the elderly, to the husband, wife, or child who's been abandoned by the people who are supposed to love them. To the person with a criminal rap sheet. They can't look at people in the same way anymore. To the abused who's not being seen or heard. To the person living in a third world country, you're never going to know their name. You're never going to meet them. You're never going to say hello. You're not going to know their living conditions. You're not going to know anything about them. All of us have infinite value, dignity, and worth as image bearers of God. And so things change, church, when, when his purposes extend to all, and we begin to see that God's purpose is actually for all. Things begin to change in us. I'll never forget my, the story that my aunt tells about the doctors who told her that she needed to let her daughter, my cousin Kimberly, I've told you many stories about them at different times in, the, in my past. But she tells the story of the day that the doctors came and told her that she needed to let her pass away a few months into her life because of all the different complications, all the different disabilities that she was going to live with if she was able to live in the first place. That she just needed to let her pass away on the table. A few years back, my, my aunt is telling us this story and how angry she was at the insinuation that the only value that her daughter, Kimberly, was going to bring to the world is the things that she's able to contribute. And if she's able to make her life as a parent just a little bit easier. And she's furious at that whole thing. And she's just sitting there going like, like you think this is like my daughter is an image bearer of God. And meaning like God thought about her when he made her. He gave her value, he gave her dignity, and he gave her worth. And that's not taken away because she's not able to do the other, the other things that other people are able to do. I told you before that God gave us 30 years with my cousin Kimberly. All of the doctors were saying that she was never going to make it outside of the womb for very long. Her life was kind of one story of one miraculous story after another, 30 years. And she was never able to walk. She was never able to run. She wasn't able to say a whole lot. She wasn't able to be independent in her own strength. She was able to say a number of things really, really well. She would always say, praise Jesus. She would always say, I love you at the top of her lungs as she screamed it out randomly. She would always say, Jesus loves you. And then she would always ask people, how can I pray for you? in broken language, whenever we would go out in public as a high school student, I'm out there hanging with my cousin Kimberly, pushing her around stores, going up to complete strangers and stuff. How can I pray for you? God loves you. Do you know that? And this, these are the words that came out of her mouth. 
But here it is, church. Like, even if she could never say a word or ever do a thing, she would still have infinite dignity, value, and worth as an image bearer of God. So things changed for my aunt. And so things changed for us when we begin to see the true value of all, that it actually means all, and that it's not just some over here. That's why Jesus is going to say in the great commandment, or I'm sorry, the great commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he's going to say this, he's going to say, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jerusalem is here. You're going to be my witnesses here in this city in which you live. Judea is over there, wherever there may be. The other cities over there. The other towns over there. Samaria is all the people that don't like you, and you probably don't even like them. Your enemies, your natural enemies, your rivals, so to speak. And then all the ends of the earth are all the different people in the world that you're never going to meet, you're never going to see. You probably don't know that they exist. And he's saying, I want you to see them. I want you to value them. I want you to dignify them. And I want you in the context of a, of a church community to send people out to the ends of the earth that they too may give glory to me. And so this is what Paul does with his life. This is exactly what he does. He goes to the ends of the earth. For, and, he, and he sees that this is, a, this is my specific purpose is how he identifies. We see this in the following verses. Verse 16, he's going to call himself and identify as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a minister of Christ, and he's going to say, to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But this is how Paul sees his specific calling. He's like, I'm a minister of the gospel, specifically to the Gentiles, to the nations, that they may know God, be sanctified by his Holy Spirit, and worship him well. He's going to continue in the next verse, pretty odd verse. He's going to talk about being proud of his work for God, which evidently he's able to do. I'm not going to go there or anything, but uh, he's boasting, in it. he's obviously not boasting in himself, and he says that in verse 17. He's going to say, uh, we can boast in the things that God is working in and God is doing. Verse 20, he continues in, in his own identification about his ministry, and I love what he says right here. He says, he's, he's going to talk about his aim or his personal ambition, and he's going to say, my personal ambition, my personal aim is to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, so I don't build upon someone else's foundation. As it is written, those who weren't told about him will see, and those who haven't heard will understand, which is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. But then again, this is the specific thing that God has called him to do in the context of the greater things that God is already wanting to do. Like he wants to preach the gospel in the most difficult parts of the world where people have not heard the name of Jesus Christ. This is where he wants to go. This is what God is calling him to do. It's not what everybody's supposed to do. This is not saying that everybody needs to go there, right? He's going to say in Galatians chapter 2, Peter was actually called to remain back in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Apollos was supposed to be a great orator and a pastor. We talked about a few weeks back how God has made us all unique individuals and, and different members of an essential, uh, essential members of one, of one body of believers over here. We come together. Some of us are prophets. Some of us are teachers. Some of us helpers. Some of us administrators. These are the different gifts that he has given us to do. All of us essential for the flourishing of his body. So again, not everyone's calling here, but this is his specific calling. And I love how he gets there. I don't know if you saw this in verse 21, but he says, as it is written, those who weren't told about him will see, and those who haven't heard will understand. In other words, all he's doing is quoting to you what the prophet Isaiah said back in chapter 52. This is, what, this is how he discerns his specific calling. He's going to know, okay, my personal ambition and my personal purpose is to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Why? 
Because God's purpose, according to his word in the prophet Isaiah right here, is that those who haven't heard or those who haven't seen will see and that those who haven't heard will also be, under, be able to understand. Isn't this fascinating? Like Paul's not sitting there going like, okay, how do I live my best life now? He's not sitting there as a Christian. He's kind of sitting there going, okay, here's my dream board. Here's all the things that I just really, really want to do. Not all the things that I, he's not sitting there beginning with himself. He's looking at the scriptures and he's sitting there going, okay, these are the purposes of God, that my life would glorify him, that all the nations would glorify him, that those who have never heard will actually be able to hear and those who have never seen will actually be able to see and understand. And so these are God's purposes. So I want my life to be aligned with the purposes of God. Churches, there's just nothing magical about his calling. We glamorize it so many times, and it's only miraculous in a lot of different ways. And surely sometimes, some places, with some people, it is a little bit more miraculous by nature. It's not with Paul. His conversion was miraculous. The power in which he did ministry was unbelievably miraculous. His calling is very simple. He's looking at the truth of God's word, saying, these are the purposes of God. This is what he already wants to do. And so my life is going to come under the authority of him, and I'm going to fall in line with him and figure out what he wants to do. Father, what is that thing that you want me to do? Specifically, God, all of my gifts, the unique ways, the things that we've talked about a number of weeks back, these unique things that you've made in me. Father, how would you have me apply these things? I'm a teacher. Father, where would I go and teach? I'm a helper. How should I go and help build different structures and different people? Like, how should I do it all for the praise and for the glory of your name? God, what would you have me do with my money? Father, what would you have me do with my opportunities? Father, what would you have me do with the different networks and the different people that you put in my life? I love the way Christopher Wright puts it, but he says this. He says, most of us ask the question at some point in our life, where does, my, where does God fit in the story of my life? When the question that we need to be asking is, where do I fit in what God wants me to do? So church, this is the question that I'd leave you with today. Have you ever taken the time to ask that question, God, what would you have me do in light of what you want to do? Have you ever asked that question? Or has it always begun with me? Here's my passions. Here's my goals. Here's my dreams. Here's my ambitions. Here are the things that are on my agenda. Have you ever come before him and said, Father, what are the things that you're doing and how do I come and fit into the purposes that you are already about? Recently, have you ever asked that question? With every new change in life, and you realize that like, these specific purposes, they tend to change, don't they? They roll, they change. There's different audiences at different times. But recently, have you asked that question and said, okay, God, this new phase of life, the kids are out of the house, the money's changed, the locations change. Father, what are the unique things that you've given me to do? Because here's the beauty of everything that we're talking about right here. Church, when you choose to live for the glory of God and you choose to see all of humanity in the scope of his purposes, their value, their dignity, their worth, no matter how much the specifics in your life change, like you're never without a purpose and you're never without a mission field. Never, a number of years ago, I'm talking with Joyce Sherrod, one of my favorites in our church, who moved across the country to California. Just an absolute joy to be around. I was talking about her transition to California, and she was telling me a lot of different stories, going and being with family and seeing the grandkids. She's widowed in her later 80s at that time, or earlier 80s at that time. 
And I was asking how she was doing, and she goes, honey, I love, I love her gorgeous. She goes, honey, I sure do miss you guys. I sure do miss the church. But God's got a different mission, mission for me over here in California. And in this phase of my life, I get to invest my life into my grandkids and into these children that they too can understand the glories of God, the goodness of God, and the ways that I've come to understand him. Church, these are things that he never takes away. As long as you're living for the glory of God, and you're asking that question, filtering it through this process, going to God, what are the things that you've given me to do right now? As long as you're living for the glory of God, as long as you're seeing all with the same dignity, value, and worth that he's created us to live in as image bearers of God, like you're never without purpose and you're never without a mission field. It's all around you. And you're not going to go wrong living in the general purposes of God in these seasons of silence when you may not have the specific direction that you've been desperate to find. And some of us need to hear this because we do go through these times when a lot of the different things that we once found purpose in seem to be taken away. And it's crushing when these things happen. Thinking about jobs and careers that change over time. Thinking about family, health. I remember a little while ago, I was talking with a friend who was coming on the back end of this difficulty, and he was just talking about the difficulty of getting older and older. And he said, my purpose in life, Aaron, you got to understand, like my whole purpose was to provide for my family and to provide for my children that are no longer in my home. Like my whole purpose was for these kids who are no longer here anymore. Like my whole purpose revolved around this health that I no longer have and this ability to do things and make money that I'm not able to do much anymore. And he talked about just how crushing it was to get to this point where he's sitting there going, okay, God, like I don't know what I'm supposed to do anymore. I don't know who I am. I don't know what my purpose is. I'm not great at making money. My kids are out of the home. I don't have the health to do the things that I thought I was able to do. And he goes, it was a crushing and it was a dark place until I discovered that as long as I have life, God has a purpose for the things, for, for, for what he's calling me to do. And you know what he discovered a little bit later on? Very, very simple things. He goes, you know what I, he goes, you know what I started to do? I started to volunteer at my kids' ministry at the church, not here at DBC, different place. I started to volunteer in kids' ministry. And in the latter years, I wanted to pour my life into the next generation. And then with what little money I had, I decided to support people in our church body going on mission trips just a little bit with what I had. Church, as long as you're living for the glory of God and you're valuing all, you're seeing all, the kids that you never saw before, the, the people going into the mission field, the ones that are able to go everywhere. Like as long as you're these things, you're never going to be without purpose and you're never going to be without a mission field. It's the mom who's despairing when her kids leave the home and they're going like, these children were the entirety of my life. They were my purpose. And now they're independent and now they're out of the home. What am I supposed to do? It's that same mom who repurposes her life and is able to find joy again in her marriage as she's talking about it, saying, you know what? There was a marriage over here that we neglected for such a long time. I was able to find joy and I was able to find purpose in this thing. And then beyond that, I was able to start investing my life in high schoolers there at the local church to be able to, that they could rise up, that they could understand the goodness of God in the same way that I came to understand it. Church, as long as you're living for the glory of God and you've seen the value of all, you're never gonna be without purpose and you're never gonna be without a mission field. It's the widow who's sitting there going, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. 
And they're finding purpose. They're telling stories of, hey, guess what? In the latter stages of my life, I'm able to start investing my life in a workplace. And I'm finding purpose and joy in this place and in the relationships that I have right over there. It's the friend of mine who's sitting there going, I don't know what I'm doing in this dead-end job. For the longest time, God, I feel like there's a different purpose. And I'm just like, what am I doing in my nine to five? I don't understand it. And then they discovered, hey, guess what? God put them there for a time and for a purpose. And he starts investing in this way to say, hey, you know what? Work is beautiful in and of itself in a lot of different ways. This thing that I'm contributing to the world is wonderful and these relationships matter. He begins seeing all in a brand new way. These coworkers that previously drove him nuts all of a sudden became, hey, these are opportunities. God can come and do a work in their life. We can develop a relationship together. They can understand the beauties, the goodness, the grace, the kindness of God in the ways that I've kind of understand it too. And it shifted his, their attention. It shifted the way that they thought about purpose. It's the singles that used to think that life begins when I say the words I do. And the same singles that are coming to discover later on, guess what? Like I always had the purpose from the very beginning. It never depended upon saying I do or having the two and a half kids and the white picket fence or whatever the dream may be. Never forget talking with this one friend uh, who uh, back in the singles ministry days, and uh, he was telling me his story and the tragic days of realizing early on that family and marriage and kids probably was not going to be in his future. And he goes, there was a time of dark depression that I sat there and I realized, hey, I thought to myself, hey, what is my purpose? And then God came in and began to reshape my affections and reshape the way that I was processing life and purpose. And I began to see, guess what? He never needed those things for me to live on purpose according to the things that he's called me to do. You know what he started to do? He decided, he was here in Dallas, Texas, and he decides, I'm going to move into the refugee community down at Vickery Meadows, realizing that nearly 10,000 international refugees live right off of there, Park Lane 75. And that the nations have come to Dallas that he didn't need me to jump onto a plane and drive or fly 10,000 miles across the ocean to engage the mission of God, that, that they were literally right down the street. And he goes, I just wanted to move in and to live around these people, to get to know them, to love them, to hear their stories. He created a movement in our singles ministry where all these different singles are not out there in the clubs trying to find their spouse and saying, you know what, this is the thing that I'm trying to cling to. They're saying, no, 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 my purpose is now. And they all moved into this community we're a hub for the church body. After school programs, giveaways. They like left and right. They were leading the charge of the mission of God in that church. Church, I'm telling you, you live for the glory of God. And you see the value of all. The dignity of all. The worth of all. I'm telling you, you're never going to be without purpose. And you're never going to have, you're never going to be without a mission field. Some of us need to hear that today, that it's okay to repurpose your life wherever you may be. Some may be in the 20s, kind of like the Piper sermon back then, sitting there kind of going, okay, God, what's my future hold? Father, what would you have me do in light of what you're doing? Some of us are in those middle age years where you're going, okay, God, what would you have me do now? That some of my purposes, some of my dreams haven't come out the way that I thought that they would come out. Father, what would you have me do in light of what you're doing in the world today, and some of us are in the latter stages that you're sitting there going, God, it's changed so many times. Maybe you're sitting there kind of going, hey, I never started to begin with, maybe it's a little bit too late, and what he's saying, no, 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 it's never too late to align with the purposes of God, to sit there and to say, okay, Father, what have you given me in this time and in this place with these people and these gifts, 
these resources, whatever they may be, whatever my health status may be, Father, what would you have me do? Where would you have me engage? All for the praise and for the glory of his name. Father, I pray that you would give us a vision for what you are accomplishing all throughout this world. God, that we would see the dignity, the value, the worth of every man, woman, and child. Maybe some of us need to see that worth right now in ourselves to understand that you have given us a purpose. You have given us direction. You have given us calling. And maybe it's more general and maybe it's specific, but Father, you do see us and you've created us on purpose. Father, for that person that's come in wondering what that may be, I pray that you would meet them right now that they would see that they've been created in the image of an all-holy, all-merciful God gives glory to himself. That is actually for our good. Father, I pray that they would choose to glorify you in the end. That we would be a people that give dignity to all, that we would love all, that we would help all follow Jesus. God, that that would shape the way that we see our purpose today, whatever that may be. God, give someone vision today. Give someone a little bit more clarity as they ask that question this afternoon. What would you have me do in light of what you're doing in this world? God, we love you. We praise you. Surrender to you in all of these things, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.